As Pastor Aaron mentioned during the announcement time this morning, between now and Easter, we will be spending our Sundays in the book of John. So that's including today, all the way up to Easter, that is 14 Sundays. And so uh, the way I decided to, to approach preaching from the book of John for 14 weeks um, was, is not going to be a line-by-line, you know, verse-by-verse kind of deal. I would love to do that, but of course that could take, you know, the, the rate that I go through stuff. It would probably, you, most of you would be dead and gone before I get to the end of that series, if, not, if I even finished it myself. So I'm going to be strategic, and I'm going to preach two sermon series, all from John, and I've broken it up by preaching the first seven sermons uh, from what have traditionally been called the signs of the Gospel of John, those signs passages. Now, um, there's debate on how many sign accounts are in the Gospel. Um, I'm not interested in getting into those waters. I just want to take what have traditionally been deemed the seven signs of John, and we'll take a look at those between now and the beginning of Lent. Okay, so that's a sermon series for seven weeks. The next seven weeks through Lent, complete, uh, finishing up at Easter Sunday, will be the I am statements in the Gospel of John, okay, the seven I ams. Um, also during Lent, uh, on Wednesday nights, I'll be teaching the Wednesday night Bible study to give uh, Richard a, a much-needed break, and I'll be uh, uh, teaching from the Upper Room Discourse, the, uh, those last moments that Jesus had with his disciples there in John you know, 12 and 13 through 17 or so, and we'll be making our way through those passages on Wednesday nights during Lent. So if you're able to come out to Bible study or tune in, then I would love to, to have you be a part of that. But this morning, we're looking at, we're going to start to look at signs in John. And when John talks about something that Jesus did that was a sign, he never means it as just some naked display of power. Just some really neat thing that Jesus did or some you know, clever, handy trick to impress a crowd. No, the sign accounts in the Gospel of John are always connected to his prologue. There, the beginning of John, uh, beginning in, in verse 1 through verse 18, John's infamous prologue, all the sign accounts from verse 19 and beyond are directly connected to the prologue. If you, if you want to turn in your Bibles, I think it will be on the screen, verse 14. We're told by John that the Word, that is the, the, the Son of the eternal Son of God, the Word became human, became flesh, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So what John is saying is the Son of God became man to reveal the glory of God, and the sign accounts throughout the, the, the gospel are how that glory is revealed progressively throughout the gospel. It's not just a naked display of power. It's to reveal something about who Jesus is, what Jesus is all about, and, and, and why he has come. Now, John will tell us at the end of his gospel, his intention in sharing these accounts to begin with. If you would look there in chapter 20, at the end of that chapter, verse 30, the NLT heading has it right. It says, purpose of the book. Here's, so John laid out his, his intentions in the prologue, but now he's going to just kind of flatly tell us, just without any uh, ambiguity, he says this in verse 30, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written, why? 
These are written so that you may continue to believe or that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Signs in John are displays of divine power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that can only be perceived with the eyes of faith. And we're going to see just that here this morning, beginning in chapter 2. So if you would turn to John chapter 2, if you grabbed one of those guest Bibles coming in, we're on page 853. And I'm going to read uh, the account of Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John. It's the miracle of him transforming wine I'm sorry, water into wine at the wedding at Cana, beginning in verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. If you've ever been to a Christian wedding, and I'm pretty confident that just about everybody in here has probably been to a Christian wedding at some point in their life, you have almost certainly heard this, something from this passage either read or at least referred to at some point in some form or fashion. That Jesus' first miracle took place at a wedding is evidence of his approval of the institution. In fact, the ordinance of marriage to begin with has one man and one woman entering into covenantal union for life. That is intrinsic to creation itself. Genesis chapter 1, you know that God created human beings in his image. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. And in chapter 2, we're told that when, when a man leaves his father and mother and he's joined his wife, the two become one flesh. And, and that is all before the entry of sin into the world. It's part of God's gift to humanity. It is central and at the heart of his creative efforts. And because of Jesus, John chapter 2 has a direct connection to Genesis chapter 2. Jesus places his seal of approval upon marriage. And when you and I honor marriage as God has defined it, when you and I are champions of it, when you and I defend it, when you and I stand up for it in the face of a hostile culture, you honor God. But that is another sermon for another time. Jesus' purpose for the moment here is even greater than him simply blessing and affirming biblical marriage. On the surface, at least, his miracle has the goal of preventing serious social embarrassment. He and his disciples have arrived at the celebration, and they're quickly told that the wine has run out. Now, I'm 41. I have three children, 
a daughter and two sons. Uh, my daughter, by the way, turns 14 today. So when you see Savannah, she's in the kid zone helping win the toddler church. When you see her after church, feel free to make her feel super embarrassed that I told you today was her birthday, okay? Because of her age and because of my age, I have never yet hosted a wedding reception. Um, and you can join me in praying that it won't happen for at least another 15 or 16 years. At least. Maybe twice that, I don't know. But I can imagine how embarrassing it would feel to run out of something. You know, not enough food for the guests, not enough drinks for the guests, not enough cake, not enough fill in the blank. It's, it's sort of like, you know, the egg on your face kind of thing when, you, when you've not planned accordingly, you've not provided accordingly. But in Jesus' day, it was more than just an embarrassment. It was, it was a serious cultural faux pas to, to run out of supplies like, like this had. You know, the, the financial responsibility of the wedding would have been up to the bridegroom. And you can even see that there in the text in verses 9 and 10 when, when the master of, of the ceremonies there takes, uh, takes the wine to the, the, the bridegroom. He's acknowledging he is the one ultimately in charge of, of making provision for the celebration. And to fail to make adequate provision would have been a dreadful embarrassment in a shame culture such as their own at that time. In fact, there's some evidence that shows that the groom could even have been open to a lawsuit filed by the aggrieved family members of the bride. Okay? So it wasn't just an an egg on your face, I boo-booed and didn't account. It is a major deal to, to fail to supply what was needed for such an occasion. Jesus arrives. Jesus saves the day. Jesus spares the bridegroom, the social disgrace. And yet, as wonderful as that is, and even on the surface, that makes a nice little sermon. The truth is, there's so much more here than what appears on the surface. Now, to, get, to begin to get to that and to really get a sense of what's really happening and the significance of it, we have to take some time to look at Jesus' mother, Mary. She's an interesting character here in the story, and she's worth taking a little bit of time to look at her role. She has some sort of invested interest in what's going on, okay? We don't know exactly the the level of connection she has to the ceremony. Some people have speculated it's a close family uh, family member or, or family friend, and so she has some role in the perhaps in the catering responsibilities. We don't know exactly. We just know that when the wine runs out and she sees Jesus, she springs into action to let him know that the wine is gone. What do you think she was expecting him to do? What was was the the point in sharing this with Jesus there in verse 3? What do you think? Now, if you read different commentaries, you'll look at different uh, scholars and where they fall on on what Mary was expecting here, and you, you have a couple of, of extremes. One extreme on this end is she's merely informing Jesus of the situation, as if just to inf- share the bad news. Well, Jesus, they've run out of wine. You, know, you and your disciples have shown up, but sorry, there's, there's none of the good stuff left for you. Well, I think that this sort of betrays the, the spirit of the text that, that, that in a variety of ways insists that she was expecting Jesus to do something. I mean, you even see it there in verse 5 when, when after he responds, she tells the servants, do whatever he says. She doesn't know what he's going to do. She knows he's going to do something. There's a, a, a level of expectation in her sharing the information to Jesus. It wasn't just sharing information for information's sake. But then there's this other end of the spectrum where certain people speculate that she was expecting Jesus to do a miracle. 
And she, as if she was saying, Jesus, the wine has, has dried up. Would you, you know, create a, a, bub, a bubbling well of wine here out of thin air, you know, creation out of nothing all over again, do some sort of extravagant miracle to save the day? And, and that's what she was expecting. And, and I would say there's nothing in the text that would indicate that either. In fact, John is quite explicit in his uh, account that this was the first miracle that Jesus did that revealed his glory. There's no evidence anywhere in the scriptures that Jesus did anything miraculous before that moment. She had no history of Jesus miraculously saving the day by some sort of supernatural divine intervention to, to recall and, and, and appeal to. Oh, Jesus, thanks for all those times you multiplied bread at our dinner table when, you know, when we didn't get enough to eat. Oh, by the way, could you do that now with the wine? There's nothing like that at all. There's no reason whatsoever that we should think that Mary was either just sharing the bad news or that Mary was expecting Jesus to do the miraculous. The most likely answer as we look at Mary's intentions, and again, this is going somewhere. We're not just having fun with the text and speculating. There's, there's a reason why we're taking this much time to discern her intentions. The, the most likely reason is that she, Mary had come to rely upon Jesus' help in times of need. No doubt, Jesus was handy to have around, not because he was the Son of God and capable of doing all sorts of you know, supernatural things. Jesus was handy to have around simply due to the quality of his person. Jesus had no sin nature like you and I have. So remove the sin nature from the equation and imagine how helpful you are to others in times of need. And that's Jesus. He's reliable. He's dependable. He's selfless. He cares. He he sympathizes. He, he enters into the needs and the problems and the, the issues of people around him, especially those of his own mother. Tradition has it that at this point in Mary's life, she's a widow. Had you ever thought of that? The, the fact, the last we hear of, of Joseph, her husband's presence in, in the family's life is around the time when Jesus was 12 at the temple. That's the last time we know explicitly that Joseph was still there. But there's no indication that Joseph is here. And tradition has it that Joseph was gone by this time. And if that is true, then imagine just how much more Mary, the, the widow who was left in that culture, would have come to depend upon her firstborn son. So you can begin to put the pieces together. What's going on in this dynamic? Mary would have learned to lean hard on Jesus to meet her needs. He had been there before. It was his duty, his obligation to be there for her. How would he respond to her now? The other day, I was uh, breezing through Facebook. I don't do it often, but occasionally I'll do it. Don't ask me why. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. I don't know why I bother. But that particular day, uh, my seminary that I graduated from had posted uh, their first chapel service of the new year. So I tuned in and was listening, and the speaker was an old friend of mine. I never had him in a class, but he was a professor while I was a student. But he's been a friend for years even before that. His name is uh, Dr. Steve Blakemore. And I hope one day to get Blakemore here so you guys can, uh, you all can meet him. He's, he's, a, he's a treat. Um, he's the uh, professor of philosophy, so he's a deep thinker, just a really clever, but he's also super down-to-earth and talented. And first time I ever met him was in college. He came to my Bible college, and he wore, it looked like a suit from the 70s. It was like a leisure suit. And, he, and, and I was picturing, like, this distinguished, kind of puffy, you know, seminary professor. But no, he comes in in his, his suit, and, and he was invited up to the piano, and he played this, like, 
jazz number on the, it was amazing. It was like, that's not what I pictured when I think of like a seminary professor. Uh, but hopefully you can meet him someday. But he was speaking, and when he, when he stepped up to where he was going to preach, there was a, a, a table, and on it was a little mini version of one of these, just a little lectern. But it was about a foot and a half too short. It was way low. And as he was getting adjusted to the positioning of things, he told the story of about how he had in recent, I don't know, months or years or whatever, uh, just gotten trifocal glasses. And, and looking down at that podium reminded him of when he first got those trifocals and how it took him time to learn that depending on you know, where you looked out of the lens, it, it determined what was in focus. So if something was far off, you know, he's looking through the top part of his glasses, and if something's you know, close, you know, close by, he's looking at the bottom, and if something's in between, he's looking in between. And so he said, for those first two weeks, and I quote, everyone I talked to thought I was the most agreeable person they'd ever met in all of life. No matter what they were saying, I seemed to be agreeing with them when all I was trying to do was bring them into focus. <laughs> I thought that was a funny little story. But, but what he's saying is, he looked like a yes man, didn't he? No matter what he's being told, he's saying yes, yes, yeah. There's no pushback, you know, there's no, no disagreement, you know, no boundaries being put out there. He's just agreeing to whatever he's being told. And let me tell you something. No matter what you say, about Jesus, you can never accuse him of being a yes man. Pure heart? Absolutely. Sympathetic, empathetic, there for you, no matter what. Utterly, perfectly selfless? Absolutely. Not a taint of sinful self-centeredness to be found. Oh, but he's not a yes man. Dear woman, it almost hurts to say it. That's not our problem. The ESV renders it, I think, more accurately. He says, what does this have to do with me? That sounds rude to us, doesn't it? It's actually a very common Semitic idiom that is literally rendered, what to me and to you. And, it, and its purpose is, is traditionally to create distance between the two parties in question. It's not in that culture and at that time, it was not rude for him to say this. But it is abrupt. And there is a, 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 an element of it that, of reproach. And when Jesus says this to his own mother, it's, it's meant to shatter some degree of expectation or presupposition on her part. That's why we took all the time a moment ago to address the, the reason behind Mary coming to her son for this need at this time. Jesus' response is in response to her expectation. What is it to me? What you're thinking in this moment, who you think I am, what I'm here to do, what this is all about, what does that have to do with me? You see, Mary has come to Jesus on the basis of her relationship to him as his mother. She's come to him with the expectation that he's going to do what she asks in order to resolve some sort of immediate temporal problem. But you got to understand, Jesus, fresh from his baptism experience, the water from the Jordan River had barely dried on his skin. 
fresh out of his baptism experience, fresh from hearing the Father's voice from heaven, affirming him as the Son of God, fresh from the Holy Spirit descending upon him and remaining upon him and anointing and empowering and filling him to do his ministry, the very purpose of his reason for being in the world, fresh out of that experience, Jesus has that in his mind. He has things that are deeper and grander in his mind and heart that his mother couldn't even begin to fathom or imagine in that moment. What do you and I have common now? Your presumption, dear lady, upon our relationship, however appropriate in our culture, in this moment to fix what in the grand scheme of the cosmos is a small problem shows that you fail to see who I really am and what I am really here to do. You see, Jesus is making a statement, not making it an example. I think that's too insidious to to. add to his intentions. But he's making a statement right at the beginning of his ministry by rebuking his mother, however courteously, he's making the statement that he is utterly free of any kind of human advice, human agenda, or human manipulation. His ministry the very purpose of his coming, from its onset in the Jordan, back to his birth, even from before the beginning of time, the very purpose of him taking on flesh and stepping into the world is to do one thing and one thing only, the will of his Father. That's it. If you want to understand Jesus, if you want to understand what he's all about, if you want to understand what motivates him, what drives him, what compels him, why he says what he does and does what he does, it's for that reason alone. I'm here to do my father's business. He had told her, by the way, when he was 12. And now he's telling her again. Jesus is a yes man to his father. Nevertheless, your will be done. Not my will, but yours. I wonder how crushing that was to Mary, if at all. Or in all the other times, we see Jesus going to pains in creating distance between himself and his family. How hard was that for her? She had carried him. She had put her her social standing on the line. She had birthed him and nursed him and nurtured him and raised him. She had picked him up when he had fallen down and she had cleaned up his messes and she had cared for him when he was sick. And, and like all mothers, she had borne him in her heart like, like every single good mother does. And now she had come to depend upon him, to care for her, to do his his duty, his obligation to her as, his, as her firstborn son. And yet, now that he had finally stepped into the true purpose of his coming, everything, everything, even family ties, must be subordinated to his divine mission. How hard was that for her? She could no longer view him or come to him on the basis of her motherhood despite all the things she had ever done for Jesus, she was no different than any other person in the world in that she had now, now it was up to her to come to him as though to to the, the promised 
Messiah of God, the Lord. Something had to change in that dynamic. She couldn't come to him anymore on the basis of her motherhood. She had to come to him on the basis of his messiahship, his lordship. In his hour, the time of the cross, which is the, the hour all through the book of John, Whenever you see the hour, my hour hasn't come, the hour is coming, the hour has come there in chapter 12, it is always the hour of the cross. And his hour had not yet come. And yet, in Jesus' mind, his mind is there. He's thinking there. It's in his perspective. It's what fills sort of his, his, his horizon as he, as he looks at the present into the future. He's always geared towards the cross. That moment of, where his glory is revealed in all of its fullness. It hadn't yet come, but his mind is there. She's focused on the temporary. She's focused on, on sort of the immediate. Jesus is focused on the eternal. She's concerned about the guests at a party. Jesus is concerned about the, about the salvation of all the world. She would have wine flow at a celebration, but Jesus would see the fulfillment of the prophets who envisioned the overflowing joy of messianic wine to the nations. And so it is. For all who come to Jesus, including you and me, by the way, when we come to him with our, our problems, when we come to him with our immediate sort of temporal needs, some sort of crisis that is in our lives, we come to him with these things and we expect these things to be the very thing that Jesus is most concerned about in all the world and he should be the one that fixes this problem exactly how I want it fixed. And Jesus says, I'm not a yes man. It doesn't mean he doesn't care for you. And you can't say he doesn't care about his mother. I mean, we know he makes provision for his mother from the cross. We'll, we'll find that later in the Gospels. But even more than that, he's making provision for his mother's salvation, the things that she really needs. And so it is with you and for me as we come to him with our problems. We want his solution. We want his help. We want him to care. We want him to say yes to us. And Jesus says, I want you to say yes to me. For the things that really matter the things that are eternally significant. He sees things from a deeper, grander perspective. And it takes faith to not only see that, but faith to be content with that. And, and fortunately, Mary leads the way for us here. She shows us exactly what that looks like. After she receives the rebuke, she turns around in verse 7 and says, do whatever he tells you. You know what I see in that? I see someone who has gotten the point. She may not get it fully, but she gets the point. She can't presume upon her relationship to him as, as his mother, but she trusts in, his, in, in who he is as a person. She trusts him. She doesn't know how Jesus is going to bring a solution to the problem or how he's going to work, how he's going to intervene, what he's going to do. She just trusts that he will. And that's the same type of faith that you and I are called to display in our lives here this morning. Don't miss the significance of this exchange. I think it's just as much, just as central and as important to this narrative as Jesus actually doing the miracle itself. This, this interaction between Jesus and his mother tells every single person in the history of, of the world since that moment that you cannot come to Jesus on some inside track. You don't have some sort of secret avenue by which you can come to him and get him to do your stuff for you. Just because you're a popular person or because people 
look up to you or you're a leader or because you're gifted or perhaps you're wealthier than others. All those things that people in the world use to place you on some sort of special place or, or put you in a higher you know, point on the pecking order or whatever. None of that matters with Jesus. There is no inside track to him. Even if you come to church every Sunday, even if you call yourself a Christian, even if you're married to a Christian, it's amazing how many people think they have some sort of pass when it comes to the things of God because their spouse goes to church. It's amazing the lies we fill our minds with. It was some sort of salvation by osmosis or something. Oh, church isn't my thing. It's for, they do it. And somehow I get some sort of get out of jail free card. No. All must come to him. Every person, even his own mother, solely on the basis of faith. Salvation by grace through faith alone. Not anyone else's faith, your faith. And Mary leads the way. She doesn't know how Jesus is going to address the problem. She trusts that he will. So what is the sign? I see the time. I know we're running a little late this morning. I'll blame the Stephen ministry folks for that. Can't be because I'm preaching too long. So what about the sign? Well, yes, he turns water into wine. But as we already pointed out, signs are not just some naked display of power. The sign reveals something. So what's being revealed here? Well, we have six stone jars they can hold 100, 150, 180 gallons of water in total, and that water would have been used for ceremonial washing. In the story, these stone jars and the water they hold, they represent the old order of Jewish law and custom, which Jesus has arrived on the scene to replace with something better. Now, you've probably heard this preached or taught before, or you've read the passage before, and the traditional interpretation is that once the pots are filled, then Jesus transforms the water in those pots into wine. Then he instructs the servant to dip the water from the, or the wine from the pots, and then serve that to the guests. And of course, by that interpretation, we are to view that the, all these many gallons of wine here to represent the lavish provision of the new age that is breaking into the world through Jesus. And, and, we're in, and it's a picture, a snapshot of the abundance of his messianic provision. And that is a perfectly right and valid and theologically accurate way to interpret what's going on there. But there's a very valid argument, one that I'm inclined to actually side with. That, that notices that the verb that John uses in the original language to dip or to draw does not refer to dipping and drawing from a pot. It is used to dip, draw water from a well. So when you take that verb and you combine it with, with what's said in verse 7 in the Greek about how they filled the jars to the brim, you almost see something even more powerful come out of the story. It's as if John is saying through this miracle, through this sign, we're learning that the, you know, the, the old order of Jewish law and custom, when, those, when the water reached the top of those jars, it, that old order had been completely fulfilled. In other words, the time for that was over. And the time for drawing water, for ceremonial cleansing, is over. And now 
that that has been fulfilled. The time for drawing wine for the messianic banquet has come. It's a powerful statement about who Jesus is and what he, how he fits in the designs of God and what he has come to bring and do. In Christ, God has saved the best for last. The words of the bridegroom are, are, are a witness to that. The, the best has been saved for last. The wine for his banquet could not be drawn from those old stone jars. No, he will provide the wine. And he does it by means of his sacrifice on the cross. And however you interpret this, folks, I'm not telling you that the first one's wrong and the second one's right. However you interpret this, this this much is true. Jesus is doing something new and he's doing something better. In the response of the head steward, I, I said the bridegroom a moment ago, I meant the head steward affirms that. Verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Everything Jesus provides, everything Jesus provides for your life is uniquely superior to anything else. And every one of you here today who has come to him on the basis of his grace through faith have come to the same conclusion. When you've received anything from Jesus, you have known deep in your heart that there's nothing in life Better than this. Everything else is inferior. When you have tasted and seen through Jesus that the Lord is good, nothing else in all the world can compare to him. And for all the, the, the great and many and important reasons to encourage Christians to come to church on Sunday morning, even come to, especially come to church in the flesh, is that you and I are tempted every single day of our lives when we're out in the world to, to think that something else in the world could ever satisfy like Jesus satisfies. And you need to come back here and be reminded of what is true. There's nothing like Jesus. Nothing. Nothing can compare. Nothing can touch. There's not even a close second to him. And if you never have experienced what he offers before, I invite you to taste by grace through faith of Jesus today. The sign reveals his glory. It points to who Jesus really is. It reveals the radiance of his glorious being in person. It proves his power over creation. Only Jesus can transform water into wine, but it also anticipates his power of recreation. And this is my final point here, and it's a brief one, and I, but I don't want you to miss it. John tells us something powerful leading up to this story about Jesus' ability to recreate, and he points it out through the numbering of the days from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And we didn't read, read all those passages, so you would have missed it. Uh, but I'm going I'm to disclose this to you now. If you go back to the end of the prologue in verse 18 and start counting days from 19, according to John's rendering of the, of the days, listen to what it comes up with. Listen to this. He's not like, he's not like Luke. John's not like Luke. Luke will, he's, he, goes, he goes out of his way all the time to be very precise about days and times and, and details. That's sort of Luke's approach. But John's a theologian. He's not a doctor. John's concerned with the theological meaning of what he's writing. So listen to how John, and by the way, nowhere else does he do this in his gospel. Nowhere else is there a, a detailed sequence of days like there is right here in the first few days of Jesus' ministry according to his gospel. If you go back 
to verse 19 of chapter 1, you have day 1 where uh, we hear about John the Baptist and, he's, you know, and, and his testimony there in, in, in that section there. So that's day 1. Day 2, verse 29, it says, the next day Jesus is baptized. So by John's, by John's rendering, we're on day 2. Day 2, Jesus is baptized. Verse 35, the next day Jesus calls his first disciples. Day 3. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael, and that's the end of chapter 1. But there aren't chapter breaks in the Greek. So chapter 2, verse 1, picks up where chapter 1 ended. And what does it say? Now, in the NLT, it gets it wrong. It says the next day again, but that's not what the Greek says. The Greek says, on the third day, it's not talking about day 3, it's talking about the third day from the last day mentioned. On the third day... Wedding at Cana. How many days is that? What is what what the seven days make? What do you think John wants us to connect between the seven days here and what he's already said before in his prologue? Can you think of anything? The creation of the world. He he said it already in his prologue. In fact, I'm going to turn there and read uh, verses one through four. In the beginning, and he's not talking about the beginning of his gospel, he's talking about the beginning of time. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. And we know the word is Jesus, because in verse 14, the word became flesh. So Jesus was with God, Jesus was God. So there's an argument for the Trinity. He existed in the beginning with God. Listen to this, verse 3, God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to all. John has already connected the person of the word to the creation of the world. And now we have here a week, the first week of his ministry points to and anticipates his ability to recreate. He's doing something new, doing something better, doing something to bring transformation, something that brings life, wholeness where there's brokenness, Healing where you're, where you're hurting. Salvation for the lost and the dying. At Cana, we begin to see that the one responsible for creation is the same one who comes to bring new creation. He can transform. He makes things new. He has come to do a greater work. The very beginning of his ministry points to the very end of his ministry when his glory would be revealed in all of its fullness. Everything up in that point is anticipatory. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a sliver of glory that's revealed, leading to and pointing towards the glory in all of its fullness when he's hanging on a cross between two thieves, and we are told that that revelation is what saves you to the uttermost. The beginning points to the end. Jesus may have been a guest at the party, but in the grand scheme of the cosmos, that is heading towards a consummation at the end of time where God marries his church. Jesus is the bridegroom. And as such, it is his responsibility to provide for that occasion. And listen, on the cross, he has done just that. And his provision is always enough. And it never runs out. And those who come to him in faith 
will experience the fullness of the blessing that comes from his kingdom and his glory. So will you join me today and over the next several weeks in following the signs to him? Let us pray. Lord, I thank you and praise you that you have made yourself known. You have dis- Father, you have disclosed yourself to your creation personally and in a saving way through your Son, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in bodily form. We don't get God Junior or God Light. We don't get Diet God with Jesus. We get the fullness of God. Jesus said, the Father is in me and I am in him. If you have one, you have the other. In Jesus, in you and through you, we have come to know the Father. Thank you for making him known. And thank you that through that revelation of who the Father is and the Father's heart and for your gracious provision, we can have life in abundance that never, ever, ever ends or runs dry. Lord, may every person within the sound of my voice today or whenever this sermon is listened to online or whatever, may they may they hear these words and not go away unwilling to come to you in faith because nothing else in their life will ever meet their need or satisfy their desire, all their desires, like you. Jesus, there's nothing or no one in all of life that can compare with you. God has saved the best for last. And so we say yes to you, we welcome you, we receive you, and we worship you. We don't approach you on some inside track as if we have some sort of, as if we've done good things and some of earned your favor, we've earned your attention. No, you've given us your favor and your attention and we receive it. We don't bargain for it or demand it. We say, we accept with gratitude and humility. And we step into the fullness of, of all you want to be for our lives. Lord, help us to do that today. And, help, and may we re, uh, in, uh, just enjoy the, uh, the, the gracious provision that you have provided. Guide us in these remaining moments as we bring the service to a close. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Pastor Jeff.